Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12. Wisdom and folly are meaningless. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, This too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And then to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting at verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad... Consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp for the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. 
no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. Um, thank you, Val, for reading. We're uh, just in now number four or five, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in number four or five of, of Ecclesiastes, so next week we'll try and pull things together. Uh, if you haven't been here or if you have been here, um, you probably found Ecclesiastes quite stretching. Um, I think that's a good thing. It's a bit like going to the gym and doing exercise. Uh, it's painful, but good for you. Um, I find it really stretching too, and I think in many ways this chapter, particularly seven, which we're going to look at today, is some of the most difficult stuff that you could read uh, and understand. And that's why that verse that Grant um, was speaking on earlier is really key, and I'd like to pray that verse for us now. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, they are to ask God, who gives generously without finding fault. So shall we pray that for ourselves now? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we know we do lack wisdom in so many areas of our lives and we need your help to understand what you want to say this morning so please help us as we look at this very difficult chapter together please help me to explain it clearly and simply as best I'm a- as I'm able and please would we hear your voice very clearly as we continue to learn from this great book together amen <clears throat> Um, I don't know how scientists know this, but I read this week that the average adult makes 35,000 decisions a day. Uh, If you're a very indecisive person, you're probably thinking, well, that's not me. Uh, That number is made up by the pioneers of the world always making decisions. Apparently, the average child makes about 3,000 decisions a day. I don't know if that's true either, but if it is true, um, it's quite a thought. 35,000 decisions in a day. Uh, And you and I will make all sorts of decisions every single day. Um, Some of the decisions are kind of decisions of indifference or not. uh, Don't really matter at all. I got up this morning and I didn't really think about the color of socks I picked up. I just picked up a pair of socks and put them on. Uh, Really, what socks you choose to put on in the morning really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Um, There are some decisions in life which are a matter of right and wrong. And the decision of what is right or wrong very much depends on your kind of moral framework or the moral system which governs your life. Um, If you're a parent and you get very frustrated with your child and you ask yourself, I really want to throttle and kill my child, is that right or is that wrong? There is right, there is wrong. But most decisions that you and I will make in our life, probably most of the decisions um, that we make, are decisions which are wise or unwise. And that's why this issue of wisdom is so key. It's why the writer of the book of Proverbs says, seek wisdom beyond everything else. It's a really important thing. But even in decisions of kind of wise, unwise, there's kind of serious wise and kind of trivial wise. Uh, Serious wise are things like, um, who shall I marry? What house shall I buy? What shall I do with my money? Um, What big decisions that we make in life. And particularly as adults, we have to make a number of big, wise decisions in our life. And they're decisions that we live with the consequences of for the rest of our lives, perhaps. 
Then there's kind of other wisdom things, which are kind of trivial, but still need wisdom. Um, if you live in the part of the village that I live, we have a big problem with pigeons. Uh, the thing I really get annoyed about by pigeons is they have this amazing ability to fly over the house, but send projectiles sideways into the windows. Some of you have this. Even if there's a ledge or there's a windowsill, they still manage to fire them sideways. And then it's always on the window that faces south, which then bakes in the sun, and you can never get the stuff off. So even in trivial things, I do need wisdom. I need wisdom. How can I deal with these things? You go back to the 16th, 17th century, there was a period of history called the Enlightenment. Uh, if you know of names like people like Immanuel Kant, uh, Voltaire, Descartes, uh, Rousseau, they've all had lots of things to say, particularly about knowledge. And some of the things they said were helpful, some of the things were seriously unhelpful. But in that period of history, as science was developing and as people were growing in their knowledge, knowledge was the real big buzzword, particularly people like Immanuel Kant. Knowledge was a way of overcoming all the difficulties in our lives. But here's the big thing. What is the difference between knowledge, which scientists or social scientists reckon the knowledge and the information that is available today, 2016, is equal to all the information and knowledge of all the subsequent years in known history? If that's true, it's kind of staggering. We have so much information in front of us, and as some people often quip, we're always talking, we're never listening. I think it's one of the true things that the older generation probably have to say to the younger generation. But if you look at at knowledge, which is always growing, and wisdom, and you look at our world, would you say that our world is wise? And if you ask yourself the same question, what would you say? Are you wise? Uh, One person I read this week was saying that the root of wisdom is to be still and to listen. And we're not very good at it, are we? Which probably means, in part, we're not very wise. Well, remember the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. This writer, this teacher, is he's trying to observe the known universe and say, where is their meaning? And where can I reap meaning? That's the big question that he keeps asking. And we've looked at pleasure, we've looked at work, and this week we're looking at the subject of wisdom. But I hope you're seeing that there's this kind of repeated pattern for Ecclesiastes. These paradoxes that the, the teacher is wrestling with. So we saw in chapter 2 that he declared pleasure is meaningless. But then in chapter 8 he said, I commend the enjoyment of life. You're thinking, what's that about? And then work, we looked at last week. Work, the writer says, brings grief, pain and sleeplessness. But he's equally able to say to be happy in your work is a gift from God. And then this week, despite the fact that he's able to say in chapter 2 verse 13 as it was read... I saw that wisdom is better than folly. We also had read in chapter 7, what do I gain from being wise? So the the writer is wrestling with these big questions of life. What is the point of wisdom? What is the point of work? What is the point of pleasure? If they're good things which he's commending we pursue, but at the end of the day when we get these things, they don't have meaning. So turn with me to chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes. The writer says, I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom... And then he asked this question, chapter 2, verse 15, what do I gain from being wise? I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. So what do I gain from being wise? I said to myself, this is meaningless. Why? Because, verse 16, the fool, like the wise, like the fool, 
will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise must die. So the writer is saying we need to pursue wisdom, and there's serious wisdom, the big decisions we make in life. There's also trivial wisdom. If I gain genuine wisdom and I make a genuinely wise, godly decision, it may not necessarily mean that life works out my way. I'm sure we've experienced that. And if I make even a a trivial decision, which is generally wise, I I figure out how I can deal with these pigeons that keep pooing on my windows, the chances are they're going to keep doing their stuff, even though I might be wise and know how to get rid of them. So the writer is saying wisdom is a good thing, but it's frustrating because it doesn't always lead you to where you want it to lead you. Well, we're going to see this morning two things that wisdom is, and maybe they'll come as a bit of a surprise to you. But the first thing we see is that wisdom is knowing our brokenness. So if you flick forward now to chapter 7, this very puzzling and I think pretty challenging chapter, the first 10 verses help us to uh, grapple with this. Wisdom is knowing our brokenness. Now, these are are really quite puzzling verses. A good name is better than fine perfume. The day of death better than the day of birth. And we start scratching our heads. We don't get that. And then it gets really bizarre, verse 2. It's better to go into the house of mourning, probably a reference to a funeral, than to go into the house of feasting. Something like, you know, a great banquet at Christmas time. And your head's scratching even more now. How is that possibly ever true? A funeral is better than a feast? For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And then your head is scratching even more in verse 3. Frustration is better than laughter. A sad face is good for the heart. You kind of read this and go, what? Well, I did this week when I looked at it on Tuesday morning. What in the world does that mean? It doesn't make any sense at all. But I think what the writer is saying, and we'll see the little clue to understand these bizarre verses, is verse 4, that wisdom so often grows in adversity. Do you see in verse 4 it says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, The heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. I think it could just as equally read, um, the heart of the wise is made in the house of mourning. The heart of the fool is made in the house of laughter. So the writer is saying that it's sometimes through the difficulties of our life as we grapple, and there's probably something, not many things more difficult than being at a funeral of someone you love, and you're going, what does this all mean? That is one of the places where in God's grace he begins to grow wisdom within us. Just take a step back. You think of the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He he addresses this crowd, his disciples at the front, the crowd is listening in, Matthew chapter 5. And you get these little pithy sayings at the beginning, which are called the Beatitudes. And one of them is this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that part of your life is about accepting that this world is broken and grieving it. Saying this world is not as it should be, it's not as I want it to be. And grappling with the pain that that causes us. But of course the alternative to actually doing what Jesus says, grieving the brokenness of our world, is either just to dismiss it or to kind of numb the pain with loads of pleasure. And hope that the, pet, the, 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 the joys outweigh the pains. And so many people will do this. 
But I think what the writer is beginning to help us to see is that wisdom can both see and accept the brokenness of our world and then look into our own hearts and recognize that we're actually part of the problem. That is where true wisdom is. And that is why I think chapter 7 verse 10, the writer says, why don't say why were the old days better than these? It's not wise to ask such questions. Why is it not wise? Probably the writer is saying that living in a broken world, the reality is not every day is going to be the best day. That's heaven. But living in a broken world now, not every day can be the best day. He's not saying don't look back to a period of your life that was more joyful or easier or more pleasurable and wish that you had that again. He's not saying don't look back with fondness and happy memories. He's not even saying don't pray for a measure of blessing and joy in your life if you're going through a very difficult patch. He's simply saying don't ask the question why is today really tough and yesterday was much better. But why does he ask that question? He's saying it's not wise to ask that question because if you can acknowledge that you're living in a broken, fallen world, if you're prepared not to just dismiss it or numb the pain and actually face up to the reality of a broken world, and the reality of your own broken heart, of course it's not wise to say, why was yesterday better than today? Because we're going to live with these experiences in the world that we're in. And it'll be tough. But he goes on to say, not only is wisdom knowing our brokenness, but wisdom in verses 13 to 20 is about accepting that we can't fix it. Have a look at verse 13 with me. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? And remember there, it's the language of Romans chapter 8, the, the, the frustration and the groaning of living in a world that is not right. Who can straighten what's been made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Living in a sort of, <clears throat> living in a sort of um, post-enlightenment world, post-modernism, where we have so much information at our fingertips, where there's so much knowledge to be gained with the growth of the internet, don't you think it's a huge challenge for our culture to admit that we're not in control? And space travel and exploration. And despite all these things, it's a good things. It's really, really hard for us as human beings to actually be able to say, if I stop and think about it, I'm not actually in control of my life. We think we are, and we go about our lives as if we're Lord of our lives, but you put your hand on your heart. You and I don't control our heartbeat. God does. And when you take a breath, you don't control your breathing. God does. He gives you every breath you have. And when I'm speaking to you now, my tongue is moving, and when your ears are open and you're listening, God is the one who gives us tongues and ears to speak and to listen. We're not in control in this incredible world that God has made. And I think the writer is saying that wisdom is accepting that life will often be, for many of us, a very mixed and broken experience. So look what he goes on to say in verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, remember, meaningless doesn't mean pointless. Your life has great dignity. You're made in the image of God. But in this meaningless, in the sense of frustrated life, a life where I have so many questions that are unanswered. 
a life where actually I'm not in control like I think I am. In that kind of a world, I've seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. And you're going, ah, that is my experience. I put God first. I try to honor him. I try to be wise. It doesn't always work. And I look out there at the godless world that does their own thing, that doesn't listen to God, that just lives for self. And often people seem to be flourishing. Why do I bother? Why am I bothering even being here? I might as well leave now. That's the kind of feeling that this teacher is experiencing. It's the feeling of my heart often. And I'm sure it's the feeling of your heart. How do I make sense of this world? And then you get this real puzzle in 16 and 17. I told you chapter 7 is hard. It doesn't get any easier. Look at 16. You get this kind of contrasting statement. He says in verse 16, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? And then in contrast, don't be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? What is all that about? As I reflect on our world and I reflect on how most people respond to the mixed world we live in with all the pleasures that we enjoy and the brokenness and heartache which we find unbelievably difficult to understand and live through, I think there are two main responses that most people would use to living in this broken world. One of those responses is to kind of try really hard to control it. Uh, We sort of live in our world and we try to control all the controllables as much as we possibly can to give ourselves as much pleasure and comfort, that's one of the big words of the 21st century, to kind of protect ourselves from the brokenness of our world. And often wealth is one of the ways we can protect ourselves to a certain degree, and knowledge is another way. A second way is to kind of sit very light to the brokenness of our world. And it's a kind of unspoken just giving up. Uh, Some people's philosophy is this world is all there is. One day we return to the grave and we become worm food. So actually... Don't worry too much about the brokenness. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we're going to die. Just squeeze as much pleasure out of this broken world as you can. Because that's why we're here. Do you remember the first talk I gave on Ecclesiastes? And I was telling you that not long ago I was at a a wedding. And afterwards I was sitting down next to a guy and he was telling me about his life and business in Germany. Do you remember the chap? He was a kind of quite um, proud of his humanistic worldview. And he said to me, here's a great philosophy I live my life by. Remember I told you I was waiting for something really profound and it was completely the opposite. I almost wanted to cry inside. He said this, this is my philosophy for living my life. Life's a game. Everyone loses. So play the game. How rubbish is that? But this is what this guy really genuinely thought was the answer to life. The two big responses to living in a broken world, trying to control as much as I can to protect myself, or just saying at the end of the day, don't worry about it, just have as much pleasure because this life is all there is anyway. But you see the problem with both responses is that in different ways you and I are seeking to be the saviour of our own life. I'm trying to protect myself, or I'm just trying to squeeze as much pleasure out of my life because this is all there is. I'm trying to be the saviour. So in answer to the question that the writer says, verse 13, who can straighten out what is crooked? Most people's answer is, well, I'll do my best. I'll give it a crack. But we're not very good at it. And that is why the teacher acknowledges in verse 20, 
There is no one on earth who is righteous. There is no one who does what is right and never sins. And then in 23, all this I tested by wisdom. And I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Do you remember I asked you at the beginning, do you think that the world is wise? And then I asked you, do you think you are wise? Here's another question. Do you think that the world could say, I am determined to be wise, but it was beyond me? And are you or I able to say, I determined to be wise, but it was beyond me? I think the Bible, here's my Bible, it's pretty used and battered, but I reckon this Bible has two main functions. See what you think of this. The two main functions of the Bible. Firstly, to reveal God to us. What is God like? Is there a God? What does he love? Does he love me? Is he relevant to my life? And the Bible does that on every page, reveals a loving God to a broken world. The second thing the Bible does, it reveals me to me. Where have I come from? Where am I going? What is my heart like? What is my greatest need? And the problem with our world is that most people have a very, very big view of themselves and a tiny view of God. And what happens when we open the scriptures? As God speaks, he enlarges our view of him and he shrinks our view of ourself. Just look at how the writer of Ecclesiastes reflects on some of these truths throughout the letter. Here we go. Chapter 8, 7 and 8. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. You read that and you nod and go, yeah, that makes sense. And yet we live our lives as if we're in control. It gets more mad. Here we are, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. When I applied my mind to know wisdom, to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day and night... It's the kind of anxiety we looked at last week. I saw that God, all that God has done, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they can't really comprehend it. And the last one, you go forward to chapter 11. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. They're pretty humbling words, aren't they? But this is the teacher grappling with life, trying to make sense and meaning of all their experiences and concluding at the end of the day, I'm not actually in control and I can't understand it all. Well, there's two ways that we can respond to this. We can respond with a kind of clenched fist of defiance. God, I'm in control. I want to believe I'm in control. And I don't like what I'm hearing. And I'm going to keep fighting you and live independently. uh, Fists clenched. Or we can respond with the open hands of humility that bows the knee and goes, I'm not in control. And actually, I thank you, God, that you are. It's a far, far safer place to be. 
Listen to the words of Augustine. He was a kind of early church father who helped the early church understand the implications of the gospel. And he wrote in a book called Confessions this. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to stick it on the screen for you to read yourself. He said, man's love of truth is such that when he loves something that is not true, he pretends to himself that what he loves is the truth. And because he hates to be proved wrong, he will not allow himself to be convinced that he is deceiving himself. So he hates the real truth for what he takes to his heart in its place. Just have a read of that and reflect on it in a moment of quiet. John Calvin called that um, learned ignorance. And it's all the stuff that you read of and understand from Romans chapter 1. That if we keep on suppressing the truth that God has made clear to us, eventually he gives us over to our own desires. And his truth means nothing to us. And the fake truth we put in his place means everything to us. What we see in wisdom is knowing our brokenness. Wisdom is accepting that you and I can't actually fix it. But don't despair because there's actually great hope. And this is the glorious truth, the glorious hope for you if you're a Christian believer, if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the truth. God has not kept wisdom out of our reach. God has sent wisdom to us. And that wisdom, it's not a kind of spiritual enlightenment. It's not a new philosophy. It's not more knowledge. The wisdom God has sent to us is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God, in his wisdom, has given us himself. And it's actually the one thing that our world most desperately needs. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, if you have a Bible. In our closing few moments, I want to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians. Uh, I think the words really speak for themselves. I'll interject a couple of times just to help us understand the flow. But I want to read these words to help us understand where this is all going and how God is wisdom for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you notice in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, look at verse 24. Jesus Christ is called the wisdom of God. So that is what this whole passage is about, the wisdom of God that has come to this broken world. But I'm going to start back in verse 17. So just follow me. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Perishing here is that clenched fist of defiance. I don't want you in my life, God. And to those people, the message of the cross is foolishness. But, he says, to us who are being saved, the open hands of humility who acknowledge that we need God, it is the power of God. For it is written, verse 19, and here he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And then he asks a load of questions, verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this, of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? People who in and of themselves feel that they're wise and they don't need God. He's saying, are you truly wise? And then verse 21, he goes on and says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Why is the cross a stumbling block to Jews? Because they knew from the Old Testament law in the book called Deuteronomy, everybody who hung on the cross was cursed. So why is the cross foolishness to them? Uh, Sorry, why is the cross a stumbling block to them? Why in the world would they want to follow someone who's been cursed? And it says, and the cross is foolishness to Gentiles. Why? Because they look at Jesus hanging on the cross and what do they say? Weakness. That's not power. But he goes on to add, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, that's a reference really to all people, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then he adds some real emphasis, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. See, he's now talking about the church, just looking around a room at ordinary people like you and me, and he goes like, he says this, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you were influential, not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God. Why does Paul say you and I must boast only in the cross of Jesus? Because he has become for us the wisdom that we most desperately need. And he explains what that wisdom is in verse 30. He, Jesus Christ, is our righteousness. He's the only way that we can be made right with God again. We can't do good things and climb a ladder. The ladder's too long. God is too perfect. But he has become our righteousness for us. He has become, verse 30, our holiness, making up for all the failures in our life. He is the one who, as his spirit enters our life, begins to transform us, to help us to change. If you ever get frustrated with yourself, I want to change, the gospel is the answer to that. He becomes for us our holiness. And as we looked last week, he is our redemption. What is redemption? Someone buying something back at a price. And it's God who so loved you. That he was able to spend the greatest price of all, giving his only perfect son, who died in your place and in my place, because he says, I'm so passionate about knowing you, I will give everything I have to make that possible. And that is why he concludes verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let no one boast, sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as we finish, we go back to Ecclesiastes. We go back to that question that the teacher asked in verse 13 of chapter 7. 
Who can straighten what has been made crooked? And the writer said in verse 23, I am determined to be wise, a good thing, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? But friends, the good news is you and I can because God has given us his wisdom by giving us himself. And that is why as a church, we've always got to make much of Jesus Christ. He is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. Amen. Just going to ask for the words of this final song to come on the screen. And if the band could uh, play through this song, I'd just like us to remain seated and the guys upstairs will just flick through. I want you to listen to the music and read the words of this song because it's a great way of reflecting on the real amazing truths we've seen in this passage. And then once they've played it through once and we've read the words for ourselves, uh, I'll invite us to stand and we'll sing it together. Thanks, Simon. Jesus Christ has become for us our redemption and our holiness and our righteousness. Do you know there's not a single person who needs to leave here this morning who doesn't need to experience and know that for themselves? Every single person can receive this gift of the gospel for themselves and have their lives transformed by Jesus Christ, just as you are right here today. So I'd encourage you to continue thinking about these things. If you want to just talk to someone who's uh, for something we've thought about this morning or through this series, do come and talk to the person who, who came, you came with or you're sitting next to. And if you want some privacy, the pastor's office will be open and you can come and talk and pray with people there. But I really encourage us, let's make our conversations over coffee really meaningful as we reflect on Christ, our wisdom. I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. But I thank God that he has become for me the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen.